Genesis. Yes, ma'am. I personally am very thankful that Ben is back. We missed him, and I miss Kyle, too. I wish Kyle wasn't gone, but uh, I'll do my best this morning. I kind of want to take a little biblical review with you this morning. Uh, you often hear the word when you are in Christian circles, you often hear the word worldview. I'm not, at, not actually teaching on worldview this morning, but I'm teaching on the principle behind having a proper worldview. So if you would, think about the very beginnings of our scripture. We don't know how long ago God created the world exactly. We think, honestly, that it hasn't been that long. There's several reasons I, I think, I, I believe that, and if any of you want to discuss it, I'll be glad to discuss that with you individually. But I believe the world is young. I believe that there was a flood a little over 4,500 years ago, and in that flood, all humanity was wiped out. I believe we see evidence of that everywhere that's denied by modern science, but nonetheless, the evidence is, is there, that there was a tremendous deluge that absolutely devastated the surface of the earth and that God preserved eight people through it. From those eight people, the survivors were Noah, his wife, his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their wives. So eight people in total were preserved through this catastrophe that destroyed the, the earth as it was then known. From that group, uh, Ham, one of Ham's sons had a son, Ham's grandson, Noah's great-grandson, whose name was Nimrod. Nimrod was a mighty hunter. In fact, I'll I'll just read you this portion of scripture here. I was just going to tell you, but let me just read this. The sons of Ham were Cush, Egypt. If you have a King James, that's Mizraim. Uh, but Mizraim translated means Egypt. Put and Canaan. So Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. Four sons that uh, Cush had, uh, that Ham had. The sons of Cush were Seba, Havilah, Sabda, Reamah, and Sabtika. The sons of Reamah, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush, that's the... Son of Ham, the grandson of Noah, Cush fathered Nimrod. He was, a, he was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, Calne, and in the land of Shinar. So all those cities in the land of ancient Babylon, Shinar, were founded by this man Nimrod. From that land he went forth into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Calne, and reason between Nineveh and Calne, that is a great city. So if you get a map and you study the, the antiquities of this world, the great cities in the very beginning were all founded by Nimrod. He started in Babel, founded cities around him, then came the confusion of tongues, and he went to Nineveh where he founded cities around him there. So the great uh, kingdoms of Nineveh and Babylon were both founded by this mighty man, Nimrod. So, now just to give you a little bit more history, Nimrod has many names in history, and I don't want to give you all of them this morning. You can do some study on this yourself if you'd like to. But if you've ever heard of the Greek gods, well, he's the chief of the Greek gods. If you've heard of Thor, Thor is Nimrod. If you've heard of several of other of these 
these uh, men of myth, of myth that we read about, they often have a historical beginning in Nimrod. You say, well, wait a minute. They're all different names. They're in different places. Yeah, but if you study their history, for instance, if you read the, the epic of Gilgamesh, Gilgamesh, although his exploits are confused and exaggerated, Gilgamesh supposedly... Uh, survived the flood. He's actually the grandson of a man that survived the flood. Gilgamesh is Nimrod. And you can go and you can study these different things. The languages were confused. People were scattered. They were scattered into different language groups. And they they spread out all over the the face of the earth at that time. And uh, by the way, historically, you can trace these things. This is covered up by modern science and so-called. But if you take those, those names that are in your Bible and you look at where the people groups went, you can actually trace out to this very day the migrations that are described in the Bible. They're still there and they're accurate to the last degree. Now that's not my subject this morning. I, I'm a very much a believer in what the scripture says. But the writer of the book of Genesis Moses tells the story of Nimrod and his greatness, and it doesn't seem to make much sense. We read it and we say, well, Nimrod's this mighty hunter, but they're scattered out all over the face of the earth in different people groups, each speaking their own language. So Moses backs up in chapter 11 and tells us how he got there. And it starts out, now the whole earth had one language and the same words, or the same dialect. As the people migrated from the east, that is, they came down from uh, Mount Ararat, they began to migrate, they found a plain in the land of Shinar. Again, that's ancient Babylon. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. So they had clay, and they burned it into brick. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. This, by the way, if you, if you know anything about building, if you build a building with clay brick and you put tar in between it to hold it together and you try to build it tall, it's destined for failure from the beginning. It's just not going to work. Even as the early pyramids all sunk and leaned, later on they learned how to build them. Then they said, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with a top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. I want you to remember that phrase. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Let me just interject right here. When Noah came out of the ark, he offered a sacrifice to God of the clean animals that had been with him on the ark. And then he, uh, uh, God said to him, okay, scatter out. Fill the earth, be fruitful, multiply. Scatter out. So what did they do? Well, under Nimrod, everyone was gathered together, one language, all of the eight survivors and their children and their grandchildren. Under Nimrod, they were gathered together in a plain of Shinar, which is just south of where the ark landed. And there they began to build a city. And they called it the Gate of God, Babel, Gate to God. By the way, Babel is, in Hebrew, also another word. It means confusion. Isn't that interesting? Man's intent was to take two words and make it to mean the gate to God, and God took the word and, tra- and changed it into the meaning of confusion. So the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Again, you want to see that, the children of man. 
And the Lord said, Behold, there are one people, they have all one language. This, this is only the beginning of what they are capable of doing. Nothing that they have purpose to do will be impossible for them. Now, God knew that that tower wasn't going to last. But if they were allowed to stay in one place and do one thing, eventually they could do anything they imagined they could do. Now, isn't that good? Isn't that what we want with our world to be able to do anything? I mean, today, what are we talking about? We're talking about cloning human beings. Isn't that okay? Do we really want to do that? I don't think so. I think that's a terrible idea. Now, I don't believe they can create souls. Only God can give a soul if they are capable of of cloning a human being. God will make the one that decides whether or not it's a real life. But here's this group of people. And God says, if they're really together, there's nothing that they've imagined to do that they won't be able to do. That's a tremendous statement. God Almighty himself said it. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language. Hear the Father speaking to the Son and the Holy Spirit. So that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them there over the face of the earth. Now what, remember what he commanded? Go out, spread out, fill the earth. So now he dispersed them and they left off building the city. And of course Nimrod himself went to uh, the, the land of Assyria and built the city county and several other places. Therefore the name of it's called Babel, again confusion, because there the Lord confused the languages of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. You say, what in the world? This is just an old story from the Old Testament. No, this story is historical fact. This really happened. The uh, Babylonian gods, if you want to call them that, uh, the, the false gods of Babylon that were invented by Nimrod and his followers have been spread out all over the face of the earth. And you can trace the idolatrous practices back to a, to a nexus point. It, it really is true that Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the Lord. He was the first to build a great kingdom. He was the first to put together what it took to be the king of the world. He was the man, and he was a mighty man. There's no doubting that. Now, a lot of the stories that you read are not true. I mean, that this, if you go back and you study this man in history, if you, if you read Hislop's book, The Two Babylons, which is an excellent book, by the way, you might pick it up. You can only get it online because it's out of print. But it was written in the 19th century, and it's just a history of how all of these different religions spread all over the face of the earth. And there's several other men that have written like things like that. And, of course, a lot of it gets into wild and speculative things, but the facts remain. From Babylon, there sprang the mystery religions that have overspread the earth. You get all the way over to the book of Revelation, and God accuses mystery Babylon the Great, mother of harlots and abominations on the earth. And that had its beginning, its starting point, right here. And so man said, let's build a tower. Let's make a name for ourselves. Let's be somebody. Well, what's wrong with that? Isn't that what we're all trying to do? To have great achievements? To be somebody? To bring glory to ourselves? Ben was talking about a paper he wrote, Sola Gloria. What, what's the whole title that, of that, Ben? Sola Deo Gloria. Okay, I forgot. It's been a long time since I've been in college. Only to God be glory. Therein lies the mistake 
made by all humanity. You see, from the very beginning point, when Adam and Eve stood in the Garden of Eden and they were accosted by Satan, Satan said to them, eat this fruit, you'll be like God. You'll know good and evil. Now, good and evil was not really the the thing there. What made them know evil was not something evil about the tree of life. God had made the tree of life and he placed it in the middle of the garden. The evil thing was that they did something God told them not to do. That's all it took. There didn't have to be anything evil about the fruit or evil about the tree. It was simply the disobedience to God's word that made them fall into sin. And what was their objective? They wanted to be something they weren't. They wanted to be like Elohim. Elohim in the Hebrew. Like the gods or like God. They wanted to be like the one that they walked with in the cool of the evening. Having more knowledge and having everything. Now knowledge is wonderful. Education is wonderful. All of my kids and grandkids, I've encouraged them. Go to college. Get an education. Learn everything you can learn. But make sure you don't leave your roots behind. Make sure you keep yourself founded in the Word of God. I say that to you today. Knowledge is wonderful. Education is great. But any education that takes away from the glory of God is going to lead to destruction. Did you know that almost all, not all, but almost all of our great universities at one time in their charters said something to the effect of, to the glory of God? Most of them were founded for the teaching of pastors and teachers, missionaries. All over this country, places of higher education were founded to give glory to God. What happened, Lucy? Something changed. Something changed. Because today, they tell our kids they don't need God anymore. They, they, they tell them to, te- to reach for their own glory. But folks... Can I, dare I step on my own feet? We do this too. Anytime we seek the limelight, we seek the glory. See, your brain is like a massive computer. You can take a, an inch size segment of any part of your brain, just one cubic inch, and you can compare it to all the computers that exist on the face of the earth. As far as its ability to store information, its ability to make decisions, its ability to control the number of synapses, the connections, it is something beyond what we are able to imagine at this point. Today they're working on something called quantum computing. They have no idea where they're going. You know, they they think they can come up with a computer that will work in a four-dimensional or three-dimensional way instead of just two-dimensional with yeses and nos and, and infinitely speed up the ability of process. Your brain's already doing that and has been doing it for millennia. And guess what? It was created from the dust of the earth. God reached down, got a little dust. I don't know what he did to it, but he made a man, and he did more than just make this physical man. He breathed into that man. He spirited, if you read the Hebrew, he spirited into that man the breath of life. And he became a living soul, a living being. And so he's made in the image of God. He is already like God. Satan, one of Satan's lies was you can be like God when God had made man like him. 
but kept him with a moral and uh, a good, godly nature. And man, by his transgression, fell from that high pinnacle and became really more like Satan than like God. And so today, we constantly fight this struggle. Which way is the glory going to go? I want to take you to another passage of Scripture right now. It's found in the book of Acts. If you would, just flip over there. It's all the way in the New Testament, Acts chapter 2. Jesus has now come as the Deliverer, as the Savior. The four Gospels have been enacted. Uh, the, The story is not written down yet, yet it has already been done. Jesus grew up before us as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. There was no harm in him. He did nothing but good. He went around healing and blessing and teaching. And the Romans and the Jews conspired together. Psalm 2 said they would. The, why do the nations rage? That's the Romans. And the people imagine a vain thing. That's the Jewish, the people, the people of Israel, the people of God. They imagine a vain thing. They conspire together and say, let's cast off the cords, the cords of the Almighty. And God sitting in the heavens laughs at them. They took our Lord Jesus Christ. They beat him. They put a crown of thorns on his head, not knowing that they were actually anointing him king. What a foolish thing they did. They put a purple robe on him, not knowing that they were dressing him in royal garments. They were admitting who he was. And then they crucified him. And he died. And I guess the demons of hell probably cheered. And three days later, our Lord Jesus Christ walked out of the tomb alive. You know, all he had to do was quit being dead. He was raised by the power of God. They couldn't take his life and they couldn't keep him dead. All Jesus had to do was quit being dead because in him is life and that life is the light of men. So all he had to do was let the light shine again. He walked out of that tomb. Glorious resurrection. Yes, historical fact. More evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ than there is for almost any other thing that happened in antiquity. People will pour over the ancient writings and ancient books and stuff and they'll say, oh, isn't this amazing what happened here or there or the other. There's more evidence for what happened with Jesus than there is for any of that stuff. Keep that in mind when you are tempted not to believe. Jesus rose from the dead. He healed. He, he, he just did so many amazing things. He died for our sins. We know that. And so he taught his disciples for a period of time, and after 50 days, you know, you know the story, after 40 days he ascended up into heaven. Ten days later they were gathered together in Jerusalem. It was the day of Pentecost. This is a festival of the Jews. It's 50 days after harvest. It's a time when they, the Jews come together and rejoice. <clears throat> and it says in Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly, that's the 120 disciples, by the way, 120 at this time, and they're huddled together in a room, a large upper room, packed in like sardines, I'm sure. And verse 2 says, Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. You notice there's a difference. Not everybody that day spoke in tongues. The whole group was filled with the Spirit. We want to make this clear. But they spoke with tongues as God gave utterance. And they were speaking in the languages of the people all around them. And the people were stunned when they saw this. 
The people of Israel didn't know what to make of it. Some of them mocked, as people will often mock. Ah, they're drunk. Peter stood up. These men are not drunk, as you have supposed. It's early in the morning. We haven't had time to get drunk. (laughs) It's a good argument. And here, here he is standing there, very sober. He begins to preach, and you know the story. Verse 39, he says, The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. There were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers, And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed, I want you to get this word, were together. Together. You'll immediately notice there's a great comparison and contrast between these two events. Number one, in Genesis, it's all about pride. It's all about man. It's all about achievement. It's all about success and self. In Acts chapter 2, only God is glorified. Peter's not glorified. He doesn't say, look what I've done. Or like Moses, he didn't say, must I bring you water out of this rock? No, Peter had learned an important lesson. It took him a while. He had to sink in the water. He had to stumble before his brethren so many times. Peter, the man that was born with a, either a fish or a foot in his mouth, he was always messing up. He doesn't mess up this day because there's a difference. He's all of a sudden a humble man who is walking by the power of the Holy Spirit. I think that's a beautiful thing. And only God is glorified in his message. In Genesis 11, Nimrod is the first great king. In Acts chapter 2, Jesus is the finest and greatest king of kings and lord of lords. In Genesis 11, under Nimrod, the whole world was united In Acts chapter 2, under Jesus, all who believe are united into one body and saved, delivered from this crooked generation. In Genesis Genesis chapter 11 at Babel, the idea was to become one people. In Acts chapter 2, under the Lord Jesus Christ, we become one new man in Christ. In Genesis chapter 11... It's disobedience to God's command. Genesis 9-1, the command was to spread out and fill the earth. In Acts chapter 2, it's the beginning of the full fulfillment to go into all the world and preach the gospel. In Genesis chapter 11, it's man's attempt to make a name for himself. In Acts chapter 2, it's God being glorified and his name being magnified. In Genesis chapter 11, there is the confusion of tongues. In Acts chapter 2... The statement is, now there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound of this multitude, they came together and were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, astonished, saying, are not all these speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each one in his own native language? In Genesis 11, it's about the spirit of man. In Acts chapter 2, it's about the Spirit of God. Again, in Genesis 11, man is glorified. In Acts chapter 2, God is glorified. At Babel, 
Confusion reigns. At Pentecost, all come together in one accord. I love this. little ignored book in the Old Testament. Zephaniah, which has one of my favorite verses of Scripture in the whole Bible, where God proclaims to his regathered sons, I will sing over you. Beautiful passage. Now you're going to go home and read Zephaniah, I hope. But in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 9, At that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. No, we don't know what that language is going to be. That all of them may call upon the name of the Lord, so... We will have the speech. I like this because when we get to heaven, we're finally going to know how to say the name of God. The real name that's been hidden now for thousands of years. And serve him with one accord from beyond the rivers of Cush. That's not an accident that it mentions Cush there, the the grandson of, of Ham. My worshipers, the daughters of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering on that day. You shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. Then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people, humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel... They'll do no injustice. They'll speak no lies. Nor shall they be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall gaze, they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. I'd like to give a quote here. It's Michael Marsh about the day of Pentecost. Here's what he wrote concerning the Spirit of God. He says, The Spirit of God has always been and continues to be our source and sustainer of life. In the beginning, the Lord formed man from the dust of the ground and spirited man into a living being when God breathed into man's nostrils. In the valley of dry bones, Ezekiel watched as the wind of God spirited new life into old, dry, brittle bones. God spirited the blessed Virgin Mary so that the child born to her would be holy and called the Son of Man. Jesus was spirited through the wilderness and anointed to bring good news to the poor, to release the captive, sight to the blind, and to let the oppressed go free. Today, he continues, we are spirited by the wind, the breath, the life of God. The descent of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost does not mean that the Spirit was previously absent. The Holy Spirit has never been absent. With Pentecost, he is now present in a different way. He is no longer limited to particular circumstances, events, or persons. He is poured out on all flesh, making us members of the body of Christ and empowering us to participate in Christ's victory over sin and death. And this means that we finally are truly free. We're free from making bricks, as in Egypt. We no longer need to build ourselves a city or a tower, but we become a city where God dwells. We no longer need to build a tower with its top to the heavens. We become a tower that bridges heaven and earth as we are a priestly family. We no longer need to make a name for ourselves for we've been named the children of God. This is the miracle of Pentecost. God living, breathing, acting, and working in us. Close quote. My friends, here's my summation. God created us to be His. He didn't create us to seek our own glory. 
The scripture very plainly teaches us that the person who humbles himself will be exalted. And the one that exalts himself will be humbled. Do you know that the scripture doesn't say much about God hating? Occasionally it does. But it says God resists. And the word there is makes war against. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Why do we so desperately want to lift ourselves up? Why do we so desperately want to be somebody? Now, I speak from personal experience. I'm no different. This is something that is in all of us. But I want you to see something this morning. Everything that God does, men and I talked about this before the, uh, the lesson this morning. It came up totally out of my lesson, but it, it was in my lesson, but I mean it. It came up in the conversation. I just, oh, well, somebody's already thinking this way. Everything God does, he starts from a seed. I mean, he made Adam and Eve, but he built the human race with seed. When he called Abraham, he said, it's your seed, Abraham, that will be a blessing to all the people of the earth. I'll make your name great. Now, Abraham, is your name great? No, I'm just a resident of Ur of the Chaldees. But I'm going to make your name great. But that's not the end of the story. His name is great, by the way, today. Is there anybody in the, on the face of the earth that has a greater name than Abraham? No, there's not. God made his name great. From him came nations, peoples, Jews and Arabs, and so many peoples come from the seed of Abraham. God started with a seed. And he produced. God brought that seed down through Isaac and Jacob and Judah and David. Through Jew and Gentile progenitors, God brought Gentiles into the line of David through Hagar and others. But God always brought a seed. At a time when God's fulfillment came, that was a seed of a woman beginning from something so tiny. Think about your garden for just a moment. Now, I'm one of these guys, I like to put plants out into my garden. You know, because you don't have to wait for them to come up. I had tomatoes, ripe tomatoes this year in March, when most people were still thinking about going to the plant store. Because I just took a chance the first of March and said, you know, the last couple of winters have been mild. It's so nice out today. I went and I bought some tomato plants. I put them in the ground and boy, they shot up. But do you know every one of those tomato plants started from a very small seed. And the seed, that seed is not the entirety of everything that is in the tomato plant. You open that seed up and you can't hardly see what produces the tomato plant, but it's in there. And it is, it is reproduced, that seed then reproduces itself. And we had these beautiful, wonderful, ripe tomatoes but it started so tiny Zachariah says don't ever despise the day of small things you know this church has not always been large there was a day when it was tiny you remember that <laughs> brother brother king was here i pick on him every once in a while you know why he can take it he's he's got thick skin i love brother king here's here's the point we don't start out as great and mighty we want to be great and mighty. It's in our very fallen nature. But we start out and God puts his seed in us. 
And if we'll allow that seed to blossom through faith in Jesus Christ, well, sometimes we, we hold it back. I'm not saying we're by any means ever made perfect or that perfection is really the actual thing that produces the fruiting. But we become the sons of God. We're revealed as children of God. Think about that tiny little tomato seed that you would spit out if you got it stuck in your teeth. And it becomes these luscious, wonderful fruits if it takes root. And that seed of God is implanted in everyone who comes to God by faith. Faith is the the seed. That seed is implanted in us and springs forth. And God wants us to grow in grace. He wants us to grow in strength. He wants us to grow in spirit. The only way we can do that is to maintain humility, to walk humbly before our God, to seek His glory. And that's true of big churches and small churches, individuals and groups. And in so doing, he, He builds from that beginning that tiny little thing and brings about something that brings Him ultimate glory. One of, the, one of these days, the Lord's going to return. <clears throat> I don't know when. I'm a student of prophecy, which you know what that means? When a, when a real student of prophecy is before you, somebody that spent his life studying it, I absolutely know nothing about what's going to happen. That's really the truth. I don't know what's going to happen next, but here's something I know. I know that Jesus is going to return, and I know that when he does, he's going to establish a kingdom. It's been invisible all these years, but one of these days, we're going to see it face to face. And in that kingdom, he's going to take up what he calls his jewels. I don't feel like a jewel today. I don't feel like I can stand before God and and say, look at me, Lord. If he were to call me before him today and I were to stand in his presence and he said, why should I let you in my heaven? I'd have to say, well, God, the only thing I can say is you shouldn't accept. I've trusted in your precious son, the one who died in my place and rose again. I've trusted him to make me fit. And you know what? I believe his Holy Spirit does that. Allow the Spirit to work in you. But the Spirit only works in a humble vessel. Paul makes this very plain in 2 Corinthians. When talking about the glory of God and Moses' face shining and him coming down from the mountain and the people couldn't even look at him because he was shining so uh, effervescently. And then in the next chapter, Paul says, we have this treasure. Speaking of the same thing that made Moses glow. It's an unfading. That was a a, a glory that faded away. But what we have doesn't fade. It brightens and brightens until the day when it's exposed. But Paul says we have this in earthen vessels. Now, the lamp cannot boast itself against the light. You can have lamps all over the room, grand lamps, big lamps, beautiful lamps, but not a one of them casts forth any light until they're lit. Then they shine. And so it is with us. God calls people from every station, but usually it's not the great and mighty. Most of the time, God calls the lowly. Did you? Did, I, that's my, true in my case. God calls those that... That, uh, and he uses them for his glory. And then he exalts them. So have confidence in God that he's able to do what he said he was going to do. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed.
Heavenly Father, put in us the spirit of Acts chapter 2. The spirit that draws us together and makes us one. The spirit, God, your Holy Spirit, that teaches us to work together, to live together, to be one people in you. The spirit of God that unites us and builds us into a single body, into a house of God into a holy nation, into a royal priesthood. Lord, let us have part of that. Let us not be like Babel, seeking only to make a name for ourselves, seeking personal glory that always, always ends in war and destruction. Lord, we still believe that you resist the proud, but you give grace to the humble. And this, going along with our lessons we're studying in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are the poor in spirit, Lord, may we be poor in spirit. We have nothing to offer you, God. We have nothing to offer you but what you put in us yourselves. This flesh is doomed. But your glory, O Lord, is forever and ever and ever. May we hide in the shadow of your grace. And we thank you for that promise that one of of these days you will gather together your jewels. And one of these days, for all the redeemed, you will sing over them when you gather your people together. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.